When you stop looking, you can start seeing. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum. On this episode of the podcast, we had Mitchell Kirsch. Mitchell's a professional basketball player and basketball skill coach. On this episode of the podcast, Mitchell breaks down how he approaches skill acquisition with his athletes, why he thinks players should move unconsciously in training, and how he builds his practices around exploration. We covered everything from warm-up to sports psych, and I hope you guys get as much out of this as I did. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with a Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use Podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite-level guests to unravel what high performance really is. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pumped about this one. We've, we've already riffed and like, we, we just started and we've been riffing right before we recorded. So th- this will be a good one. Talk about warm-ups, talk about play, talk about the psychological side of things. Um, you, you talked about how you, you've listened to the, the Bobby White uh, kind of podcast. And that's why I look at your page. You messaged me uh, and, and I saw your page like, holy shit, how have I not had this guy on? Like, there's a ton of good Bobby White, like a lot of things Bobby White's doing, a lot of things that we're doing. And then you're applying it into like this basketball, like basketball world like how did you get to the point of applying all of these methods into the world of basketball which is kind of notoriously like stand at a line and shoot stand at a line and shoot and it's it's kind of funny that it's notoriously that because like the game of basketball is so artistic like it's just like the best basketball it's, it's one of the best sports in the world of like lebron steps on the court and you're not telling they are that dude is just stepping onto the court and running the game like he's just a beautiful athlete and he is it's almost art when he plays um, but yet we'll take it and like these strength coaches will take him like bring a shoot here and like even worse is like I saw something right before I got on with you is they were shooting med balls to increase like range or something like that was like, you're doing it for fun but it's like they were doing like sports specific training like that was their thought process with it I was like oh boy um anyways how did you apply all of these things into the world of basketball how did you get to this like open-minded thought process of I can take all of these components into basketball and, and work with my basketball athletes yeah absolutely it all starts with the town I grew up in. So I'm from a small town in New Hampshire, 7,000 people. And I've always been super dedicated, like fell in love with basketball from a really young age. Been in my family. My dad played, grandfather played, my older brother plays. Um, So we all love basketball, but there aren't a lot of people in our town that are good at basketball. And 
it was just like us out in the driveway getting after it. And after a while, like my brother and I were, were close in age and we're really competitive and it was more dangerous for us to play against each other than anything else. So we kind of stopped uh, competing with each other and we just trained on our own. And because I wanted to get better and there weren't a lot of people in the town, I just looked for the resources available and it was much through the internet. So looking on Instagram, looking on YouTube, like whatever I could get my hands on to help train myself, I would do. Um, there really weren't many trainers even in the area that I could go to. So it was kind of up to me. And um, that's kind of how it all started is I would just pick from all these different areas. And, you know, I had some some coaches um, as well, like on some teams, but most of it was my dad coaching. Um, so we had the drills we would do. Most of it was like, my dad would still play us in one-on-one. I don't think I beat him until I was in high school. Like he would, he would kick our ass all the time. Um, and so it was just like a constant, like competition in the household and we want to get better. So we had to find creative ways to do it. So I'd pull from, you know, YouTube, I pull from the coaches, whatever. I'd try and make my own drills, like whatever I could do to get better myself. And, and that's kind of what's transferred into helping others do it because I just really enjoy this process of, of taking someone where they're at and trying to get to where they want to go. Who are some of those uh, OG like inspirations, o- OG rabbit holes that you were diving into on YouTube and uh, in all of those blogs that I'm sure you got stuck into? Yeah, so very early on, I learned how to shoot from uh, Pete Maravich VHS. I think it's VHS, right? Uh, like the old things you put <laughs> <Yeah>. in. Uh, <laughs> Some of you might not know what they are. I, I barely know the name, but um, so I learned to shoot from Pete Maravich. Uh, Micah Lancaster had some like crazy videos with like rip cones and throwing tennis balls and stuff. Uh, Gannon Baker was pretty big at the time. Like he would have like two ball dribbling, literally dribbling at 110%, like shaking his head. He was going so hard, um, which a lot of the cha- a lot of the tra- training has changed and then they've grown off that stuff. But um, that's where it originally started. And then you start to feel the drills yourself and you, and then you shift from there. Um, and I think once Instagram really took off, uh, I looked at guys like Jordan Lolly, um, who I ended up going to work for. Um, I looked at, um, there was actually a guy in New Hampshire who was young at the time that I learned a decent amount. Um, that was more towards my high school time. His name is Noah LaRoche. And he's moved on to, to do a lot of NBA work out in California. And he was really big into like three on three play. Um, so I just, I really got lucky by not having many resources that I had to go search and I searched and found a, a really wide variety of people to pull from and I've tried to pull what I can do. Yeah, that, that it's like that obsession piece. Like you, you, you're so obsessed with getting better. Like your question was, how do I get better at basketball? And I, I'm reading this, um, how, how the body stores trauma. But one of the things that he was talking about is when he was studying PTSD, there was nothing on uh, PTSD at the time when he was, when he was starting this and he had to go to all these li- uh, libraries, but he said it was one of the best things because he had to dig so deep into like whatever, like even if it's bullshit, but he had, he learned how to find out what was bullshit and what was good and actually apply it rather than just be given a textbook on here are your drills. Here is your answer, which I, I was like, wow, that's really cool. It's like when you're actually presented with a question that you don't have the answer to right away, it's almost better because you have to dig so deep into these rabbit holes and learn, okay, this actually works. This actually doesn't, but you're actually applying it rather than going to somebody now where you can go on like 19 different Instagram pages and you can just get kind of stuck with one textbook of drills, one textbook of coach coaches that kind of give you stuff and uh, kind of going from there. But how did you 
How did you take this? So you, you were looking to find the answer of how to get better at basketball for yourself. How did you take that to being, I want to apply that answer to more athletes. I want to apply that answer as a coach. Did you go college route and then realize maybe I didn't want to keep playing myself and I want to find that answer and expand it to players? Uh, you mentioned you went to Cali to go work for a coach. That, that's a huge shift and like move to go do. Like, what was that kind of process? What was the next journey from you got that initial like hit of addiction to this is this is what I want to find the answer to? How did you kind of transition that into where you're at now currently? Yeah, so like we talked about, it all stemmed from my own playing. I just like really got obsessed over it. And I'm from a small town, but there are still other kids that really like basketball. So the ones that would keep showing up to the gym were a little bit younger, and I would just throw them into my workouts, and we would start training. So we had groups going. Um, and part of it was, again, like a selfish reason. Like I was tired of working out on my own. Like I wanted to play with people. Like I wanted real basketball stimulus. Um, so I got like my first case when I was in high school and I would have like middle schoolers come to the gym and we would just work out together. Um, and then moving on, I went out to college in California, still playing. Um, but what happened was the COVID year came my, uh, my senior year. And so I basically knew that I was going to finish my degree, but I had one year where I was not going to be playing competitive basketball and everything was shut down. There was no court space in New Hampshire, but there was one private gym that was still going and it was out in California with, with Jordan Lolly. Um, so I sent him a DM on Instagram. I was like, Hey, I've got a training business back home, but it's shut down. Like you need people to rebound. Like I'll play defense. I, I saw that he had NBA guys in there and like, I'll go play good defense and I'll give good passes and I'll rebound the ball. Like <laughs> yeah. whatever I can do to still stay in a gym, I will do it. And he was like, yeah, sure, come in. Um, and so literally the first day I walk in, it was Zach Levine. He, I walk in, Zach Levine's got flip-flops on. He jumps <laughs> up, does a windmill dunk. And I was just like, this is a totally different world than New Hampshire. Uh, but it was an amazing experience because I got to work with the completely different side of the spectrum, like the best in the world. Um, so there were every day, like different NBA guys walking into the gym um, NBA, G League, overseas pros, whatever it was. And I build up some respect with Jordan that sometimes these guys would come in and he would have two, three at a time that he needed extra hands. So I found myself helping out with a lot of these workouts or taking on these overseas pros who might be older than me, but I need to run their workout. Like I need to run their skill session. And I'm walking in that day and I don't know who's coming in or what they need. So it was really a great experience for me because I had to figure it out right there on the spot. And so that's how my mornings would go during this COVID period. And then at night, he gave me his like middle school group. So I would have 40 kids at night. So in the morning, I'm dealing with NBA level people, one-on-one -on -one basis, maybe two-on-two. -two. At night, I'm dealing with like 40 middle schoolers. And so I'm again, like just thrown into fire, got to make it work. <laughs> yeah. yes. We got, I think we had two, four, we had six baskets. Um, ball slide everywhere. Um, and you just had to make it fun, like make it enjoyable. These kids are at home not doing anything because of COVID. And this is like their one outing for the day. Um, so that's how I, I kind of got into the, the training full fledged. And then I, I came back to New Hampshire because I had like that, I had a grad year still and I wanted to play again. Um, so I actually came to school in Boston uh, for our grad year. 
And so that brought me back to the East Coast, played my grad year, and then I had a full summer where I like really built up this training program um, and had a lot of college kids coming. I think I worked with right around 50 kids last summer, and it's probably going to grow quite a bit more right now. Um, but the funny part is I'm actually still playing professionally. So I played uh, in Colombia, South America um, for a few months at the beginning of the year, and then I'm about to leave in, in like another month and go play a second season. Hell yeah. um, and then I'll come back for the summer and I'll train kids. That That's pretty sweet. What, uh, okay. Yeah. That, 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 that opens up things. Cause I'm interested in what, what if, what is like working with these elite level athletes and working with the middle school athletes and just coaching and like having that, that kind of knowledge behind it. How has that helped you as a player? Like, how has that helped you? Maybe it's developed drills yourself, or maybe it's just working with these athletes. Like I'm assuming you're getting a ton of skill work in yourself, even just as a coach, like working with these athletes, even if it's just rebounding a ball, you know, like what are some of the things that you've taken as a player from being a coach? Like I, we haven't had a ton of player coaches on, so that's, that's, this is a pretty sweet and unique dynamic here. For sure. I, the one, like, pretty obvious like first one is rebounding because i'm passing and rebounding for so many shots that like reading the angles like i'm i'm like six two six three not a high flying guy but this past season uh playing against the most athletic guys in columbia like we played against joe hampton from last chance you like it's a it was a pretty high level basketball I averaged uh, eight rebounds a game and like had a few games where I like had 14 rebounds, 15 rebounds. And it was purely just because like, I see so many shots with all these training sessions that my anticipation with uh, like going where the ball is going to go has improved a lot. Um, But I think that one of the most important things that I've noticed is more on the mindset piece. And it's very difficult for me to switch from a trainer to a player. And when I'm a trainer, I'm a little bit more, I'm focused on giving feedback. That's, that's generally like a a framework or I'm focused on setting up an environment to bring out a certain aspect of movement, a certain skill. So I'm like very intentional about how I'm constructing that environment and I'm observing the qualities that I want to come out. And if they're not, maybe I need to shift the environment a little bit. As a player, I do not want to be thinking about what feedback I can give myself in that moment. That's not going to help me as a player at all. So it's it's that ability to switch like, all right, when I'm a player, F it. Like, I just got to go. I can't think. I can't doubt. Like, the coach gives me feedback, and I'm going to take that feedback and try and not take it personally and just keep hooping. But as a trainer, I'm in a feedback mode. Um, so I think – having that experience of trying to shift back and forth has given me more permission when I'm playing on the court to just be totally zoned into being in the moment, being present, being non-judgmental. And then when I'm, when I'm a trainer, I can, I can do the other stuff. Yeah. That, that, that probably that's... comes, it comes a little bit more naturally to me, like the, the analytical piece, the feedback piece. Um, that's a little bit more natural personally, whereas I, I now need that like permission to just be present and go. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I found too, is like being a coach is like I, watching other athletes fail and like having it from that coaching perspective has allowed me to almost like take that, like take a step out of being so attached to the failure for me. Like that, that's been really powerful too. It's like, I see my athletes fail every day and nobody's like, when you watch it from that outside perspective, you, you watch an athlete fail, you watch an athlete mess up and you realize 
honestly, no one really cares. Like you, you really do. Like, I, I feel like it's like, okay, you messed up. Let's go. But like when you're that person that messed up and, and you really, you, you've, I've, I, when I, especially me, like I, when I had never been exposed to that outside perspective, it's like the world is crashing around you. Like, like I fucked up everything. So and you start to, you see these athletes spiral and that that's been super powerful for me both sides because now as an athlete when i go and compete in whatever i'm competing in it's like okay like i've seen this dude like i've seen athletes of mine mess up in much higher stages i've seen myself mess up on much higher stages and just like nobody's watching nobody really cares and in that free state allowed to like be free in that sense but it's also as an athlete in that moment or as a coach it's like watch it watching your athletes mess up and just being able to give them like talk to them it's be and because because as like you're competing, you're you're an athlete, you're competing. You have the experience of when you mess up, you can talk to the athlete and be like, I mess up all the time, man. Like it, like you need to unattach yourself to that mess up. You need to unattach yourself to what's actually happening and just allow yourself to perform. And I, I think that's that's been super powerful for me and super powerful for me as a coach as well to be able to share that information with the athletes. Cause I feel like so many coaches are, it's almost like they're so disconnected that it's like they they have the outside perspective of understanding that the failure doesn't matter, but they're really not able to bridge that gap to that athlete and explain that to the athlete because they themselves are not competing. So they themselves don't know how that athlete feels because they they look at it as it doesn't matter. I'm watching it and it's happening all the time, but they are not attacked, like going to that athlete and understanding that that's not how that athlete is seeing it because they, that coach is not competing. So I've definitely found like, it's like that yin yang, like back and forth approach of like, it kind of helps both sides and allows you to play with the psychological game of the game a little bit more. Absolutely. I think there's a huge thing right now happening where people feel like kids don't care. Whereas I think sometimes kids are giving this impression that they don't care to take a little bit of the pressure off themselves because they actually deep down like really care too much. Hoping that. Um, yeah. And, and I posted a video a few weeks back and it was guys shooting threes and they would turn around and they weren't allowed to look at the end result. <laughs> yeah. And I like the caption was uh, it was just like, stop caring. And people got really, really upset about the the words like stop caring. And the whole point of the drill was was just for the guys to take their mindset off of like a make is good and a miss is bad and just really tune into their body of like when I shoot this shot, I feel like it's going left. I can feel it going right. I can feel it short. I can feel it long. So like really just to connect with the feeling of their shot and be a little bit more aware of where that ball is going. And what that does is like, it takes away the good, bad from the make miss. And then when they were just shooting in the rest of the workout, they were in a little bit more of a neutral and non-judgmental state and they could access flow a little bit more. And they were just knocking down shots like they had never done before. And people got really upset. It was like, Oh, follow your shot, whatever. Like, Oh, don't tell them to stop caring. Like you need to really care to be good at something. It's like, yeah, you do. But, most of these kids by default, like really care already. Especially if they're coming it's to work just, with you. Yeah. If they're at a session, like they, they definitely care. Yep. And if kids are showing or like making it so obvious to the point that like they, you feel like they don't care. Those are the ones that probably care the most, like mm -hmm. give them a little slack, make them feel comfortable and then see what happens when they are in a, in a space where they feel free and like, they feel like they can fail without any judgment.
yeah that that's so freaking good that that's why i brought you on right there that that's that that's gold right there uh and you you talked about like that that athlete because you see this a lot and especially working with uh more high school i see it a lot in high school groups because college is a little bit different i've noticed because it's less less clingy in their like in their groups high school because a lot of times like Maybe, especially when we have a bunch of different sports and a bunch of different colleges coming in, it's not like their peer group necessarily that they're hanging out with. So if they fail or they mess up or they goof around in that meeting, like it's their peer group and as like it's their workout buddies, but it's not like that person is going to go to class with them for the next 10 hours. Whereas high school, I've noticed it's like it's it's their peer group. It's it's their people they work out with. Then they go to school with for eight hours. Then they Mm -hmm. go to practice with for three hours and then they hang out with it after for three hours so their entire like social hierarchy relies upon that peer group and you'll see these kids it's like they are they are set in this like social hierarchy and they know it they like they don't want to fail because if they fail they know they think they'll drop in this social hierarchy so like you said they'll completely step out like it's high schoolers like they'll completely step out of a drill they'll completely step out of something and having them understand like that your one if your social hierarchy depends on if you fail or not in this setting like your social hierarchy sucks and you should leave it anyways like if, if, they, if that really matters but really getting them to understand like it, it it's not going to matter and getting like you said like it's it looks like the athlete especially high school and i know like i see these because we, we work with like a couple other coaches and you'll see some of the other coaches just scream at these high school kids like you're not trying you don't care it's like that kid no like that that's not what's going through that kid's head that kid is so anxious based and cares way too much about like that result that he's just like he would rather not he would rather not try at all than risk like he'd rather be mediocre and and just stay at that baseline and stay in that safety zone because he cares and has so much anxiety and so much attached to the movement and and whatever you're doing maybe it's the shot maybe it's the swing maybe it's a maybe it's a lift but it's like it really has nothing to do about the lift or the shot or the swing itself but it's like it's deeper. It's like that social hierarchy that is weighing on it. It's like that, that emotional weight of that lift and that shot means so much more to that kid than the actual result. And probably more than even the sport. Like he doesn't really care about the results. It's like, why do you care about the results? Is it okay? It'll increase who I hang out with. It'll increase like what they say about me, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's much deeper than, than just that kid doesn't care. He, he's not even looking at the shot, like that type of thing. Hundred percent. I'm so happy you brought this up. I was thinking about this earlier today. Um, there's a few kids that are consistent people in my workout groups that are very good shooters. So you can pass them the ball, and you're just like, all right, shoot ten. They'll consistently make eight, nine, ten out of ten, like guaranteed. Then at the end of workouts, or especially like in season when they're back at their college and there's more of a social hierarchy, they will pass up so many open shots and it drives people nuts. Like their coach gets, goes crazy over it. The player themselves goes crazy over it. Like sometimes they're like, I don't know why I didn't shoot that. Or like in the game, like they don't perceive themselves to be open. And then when you really break it down and talk to the person, which I think we'll, we'll get into more so later, like connecting with your athletes. But when you can talk to that person and be like, like, all right, let's not talk about basketball. Like, how's your team at school? Like, how do you like the guys? And they're really worried about like, I don't know if they like, I I fit in, like they're worried about that social piece. And I was like, all right, like, well, if you shot 10 shots in a game, like what would happen? And they're like, Oh, like the guys would probably be upset. They'd call me a ball hog. I don't know. Like we said, not like you could have hit all 10. Like I just said, you shoot 10. Like what if you go 10 for 10? 
but the initial thing is like the the guys in the team will think I'm a ball hog. I probably am not going to fit in. Like I'm going to be an outcast on the, on this team. So I'd rather not shoot that shot. And when I don't shoot that shot, everyone on the team is like, Hey dude, why didn't you shoot that shot? You're a really good shooter. You probably feel pretty good that all your teammates are now bringing attention to you, asking you a question, telling you you're a good shooter. Like you get rewarded in a way by not shooting a shot because everyone else surrounds you is like, Hey, like you got to shoot that next time. As opposed to when you shoot the shot, you anticipate the reaction of everyone being upset at you, the coach being upset at you for whatever reason, or your player, like your teammates not liking you. And so like, we could do all the shooting drills in the world, but if you can't get over the fact that like missing 10 shots or shooting 10 shots or like just shooting in game, isn't going to get you socially like expelled from your friend group. Like we're not going to get anywhere. So we got to deal with the human first and then the shots will happen. You're already a good shooter. Like just, just be okay emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. And as a coach, you really got to build that culture up too. Cause that's something I talk and see a lot. Of, and I, I have more of this American football background, but it's like all these coaches, like this athlete's not creative. It's not fluid. It's like, well, yeah. Cause like, as soon as he steps out of line, like if there's any risk of failure at all, you sit there and scream at him. Like it's, it, it's, it's basically the same analogy of like, if you miss one basketball shot, that dude gets benched. Like you bench him for the one missed basketball shot. And in football, it's like that dude made one wrong move or did one wrong step. He's like, you got to set up an environment in which they're able to explore. And obviously you can periodize that and you can build it out to where like, they're not doing it on Saturday. You're not doing it on Sunday and game day. Like that's probably not the time to explore new movements, but you want these athletes to be able to explore and, and hit that like exponential growth of, I kept exploring, kept exploring and finally found something that worked and clicked. And maybe it was a new shot. Maybe it was a new release. Maybe it was a new juke move that, that I came up with. But as a coach, you're really, really responsible for building up that environment and it's funny because you you kind of have these like paradoxes of coaches like pissed that it's not happening and then chewing their athletes out about it. Like they're causing it and then they're pissed that it's caused, but they, they, they'll they look at everybody but themselves. And that was one of the reasons that I, I brought you on the podcast, too, is like you build these awesome environments like you, you build this the these beautiful games and these beautiful drills that are actually working on these things and working on the social dynamic and working on the gamification piece and working on the exploration piece that you talk about, like shooting and turning around and just, it's a little bit of a, just a deeper look at what you're actually doing. Like the shoot around shot, like what somebody that doesn't have the deep approach is looking at, Oh, well, he's not following through on a shot. They're looking at the physical, they're looking at that technical part, like, but they're not able to take a look just a tiny step deeper of what you're looking at, which is that unattachment to what that athlete is feeling and what that athlete is doing. So how do you go about creating that environment in your gym? How do you go about creating that environment in those sessions to where you're actually working on these things and you're building an environment in which the athlete feels comfortable doing the things you and I are talking about? Yeah, for sure. So give a little bit of background on like the way I approach a lot of stuff from an academic sense is like, I love sports psychology. That's what I've studied. So when I bring in a lot of my drills or set up these environments, I'm without a doubt thinking about how they're going to impact the athlete on a psychological level. And that can be like an emotional level, but like literally like what areas of their brain are going to be activated when we're doing this, this thing, or do we want them to be focused externally? Do we want them to have a reflection period? Um, Like, can we control their focus? So I I think about a lot of those stuff, a lot of that stuff before I I go in and create this sort of environment. one thing I really try and emphasize, especially for basketball players, is having an external focus. And so a key element in a lot of the 
work that I do with these, these guys is uh, you have live defense most of the time. If you don't have live defense, you're probably going to be dealing with some sort of external prop like a tennis ball or a foam roller or like a lot of times I'll have noodles. Like I'll literally just like try and block shots with noodles. But I really want them working on just having that external focus piece because most of their day is spent in like an internal reflection period. And that's not how basketball is played. It's majority, majority external. And you're going to be either external broad, kind of surveying the court, looking at where your other players are, or external narrow, like you see an opening, you got to go and attack the rim or whatever it is. So a lot of those environments, I, I think about like just the attention. Where is the attention being placed? Um, like one example was throwing up a balloon. We did it at the beginning of a, one of these workouts. So we throw up a balloon, you got to hit it with the ball and then you got to finish. And it was, a, yes, it was a finishing drill. Like they're working on some finishing. We did it at the beginning of workout. So they're jumping a little bit, getting some plyos. It was an in-season workout. So I wanted it to be fun because most of their environments are like really intense with their coaches and yelling at them and stuff. Um, but the like most important thing, as far as I was concerned in that, drill was I wanted them having a really distinct external narrow focus on the balloon and then having to shift that again external narrow to the rim like how quickly can you shift from an external narrow balloon to an external narrow uh, rim and like execute the skill of finishing and it was fun they laughed whatever but then the rest of the workout kind of priming that their brain to have an external focus so that they can really implement these skills in a fluid manner was more of the the intent that I wanted um, and it, like in season my emphasis was let's have a little bit of fun because it's usually a pretty emotionally intense time for those guys if their team's not playing well or if they're not getting what they want out of their season um, so like let's have some fun let's let's change up the environment throw a balloon around um, but those are some like some of the aspects um, that I throw in to to try and create this environment where they're going to actually be doing, they're going to be performing skills that transfer with say live defense, like giving them the informational cues that they're necessary for them to transfer the skill to basketball um, or just like the, the pure external focus. And then if we're going to have some internal focus points, it's going to be very intentional. So I'll do a drill. We'll be doing two on two and then we're going to stop 30 seconds you got to sit on the bench alone, reflect on your own. And then we're coming back and we're playing again. And I really want to emphasize like, how can you take what's happened, process it like you would in the game when you get subbed out or during a timeout and then go make adjustments and go be okay playing again. Um, so that's something we've been, we've been toying with lately is the reflection period in workouts being very explicit and then getting right back to that external framework of attention. Yeah, that that's so damn good. Like the ebb and flows. We talk about that all the time. It's like it's like it seems to be like one of the biggest missing pieces in practice, skill sessions, even lifting. Like you can do it in lifting, just even a little bit. I don't think it applies quite as much because the athlete really, unless it's a power lifter, really doesn't like have that mental weight. But it's like uh, even in lifting, we'll, we'll play with like, we'll go external, internal, external, internal. And like, how do you react to that? How do you adapt to that? Like uh, sitting on the bench after shots, like that is something I was, I was a thrower in college. And that, that was one of the biggest things that was never trained. It's like, we would just throw like 19, 20, 30, and basically until you got in a groove. And it's like, that has nothing to do with like the sport. The sport is you step into the circle 
and you, you throw once, then you sit for 10 minutes and watch other people throw. Then you got to go get yourself back hyped and go do it again. And if you fucked up your first throw, it's like, oh, shit, you got to think about that for 10 minutes. Come back in and you get three attempts at that. And if you mess up your second one, then it's just like you, you sit in with that pressure. But th- that is one of the things. And I always think about like how many different ways you can kind of work on that and approach it or just at least expose the athlete to it. It's like, OK, we like it practice is a time for you to do that because you've seen in basketball too it's like you just shoot around like you just shoot like until you get in the flow and then you, you feel like you kind of make practice because once you get into flow towards the end or whenever it is like you just get into that rhythm it starts to feel good you start rolling they're like oh i'm a good player like I, we had a good practice i just made a bunch of shots it's like yeah after the first 15 missed shots after the first three scratch throws it's like you get to a meet you get to a game like that doesn't work, bro. Like you go over 15, you don't get to go into a groove after that. And I think that that's a huge part and allowing that athlete to explore that in an environment too. It's like, that's, that's what I've found is like having that athlete sit in and go through that ebb and flow. And when they come back, they struggle a little bit. Okay. Talk to them about that. Like, I think that's one of the biggest pieces. Just talk to them about that. Have them understand how that relates to what they're doing and how it goes. And then when they feel that in sport, it's not the first time they felt it in sport. And I, I, again, bringing it back to when I was an athlete, a lot of times it was the first time I felt it in sport because everything we did in practice was like these, these blocked practices where it was continual movement and just trying to get as much done in practice, but totally eliminating kind of the exposure of what the sport actually is and what the sport actually requires. I, I think like throw like a QB, like he, he, the same thing. It's like they, they throw so many times in this practice and over and over and over again until they get in a groove. But it, like... You don't really get to do that in a game. Like if you're thrown on the first play and your first pass is bad, it's intercepted. You literally could cost you the game, you know? So like being able to expose that athlete to that psychological stressor and then having them explore different coping mechanisms, coping quotations, like different mechanisms to approach that. I struggle. I do really good when I think about this on the bench. I do really bad when I think about this on the bench. Um, th- This really didn't work. And, and I think just giving them, again, we talked about giving them movement tools, but like, let's give them psychological tools to solve the movement problems that they're about to face on the court. 100%. And I think it's a great way to think about it is from a strength conditioning standpoint. And it's a way that a lot of people understand. Like, I mean, I, I from the basketball perspective, I see a lot of off seasons go like this. Your season ends, maybe it went okay, didn't go how you wanted. Regardless, you're really, really motivated at the beginning of that offseason and you want to get a lot out of it. And the easy, easiest low-hanging fruit like for a lot of kids is I'm going to get on a strength conditioning program and I'm just going to really transform my body. And that's good. Like A good program should prepare you for the needs, the physical needs, when you get back on the court. So you want to have some plyometrics if you're a basketball player in your off season, because if you don't, then you're probably not preparing for the physical demands of the season. But when it comes to the basketball training, what a lot of kids think hard work is in the off season is like, Oh, I'm going to go shoot 500 shots in the shooting machine. And like, Oh, I really got after it. I won't, I'm not going to make any comments right now on like the skill acquisition piece of that and how that's probably not as effective, but let's just look at the emotional piece of that. Most people in the basketball world are super, super happy in their off season. They're having the time of their life and like, oh, basketball is fun. Like maybe they play pickup. There's nothing on the line. They shoot on the shooting machine. Yeah. You're probably a pretty good shooter when you have no defense and you're shooting the same shot 500 times. And then they get to the season and their coach says something that really ticks them off. And they have, like you said, no tool to deal with that. Like they're not, 
prepared to do that. They didn't get those like the equivalent of like those extensive plyos in the off season for the emotional side of things. Like you didn't get the emotional reps to deal with frustration and then come back. And so that's, that's something like I really like to see in my sessions. If I don't have players getting frustrated, it's probably not helping them at all. And those are the moments where it's like, all right, if we have some frustration and I know a player is good at dealing with frustration, good, I'm going to leave it. But if we have frustration and then the season prior, like that frustration took them out, that's when I want to go in and be like, Hey, like, why are you frustrated? It, like, do you get frustrated in season? And they're like, usually like, yeah, I do. All right. What happens when you get frustrated in season? Uh, I start to play worse. Okay. Well, does that help you get on the floor? Like, no, it doesn't. So like, you're on your own team right now. You need to figure out a, a solution to dealing with your frustration. Like take a few deep breaths. Like we can go through all the psychological tools, but like that point of questioning is so important in getting them those like extensive emotional frustration reps or whatever you want to call it in the off season. Also just as critical as preparing their physical body for the season. Yeah. I love the point how you brought it up is like reps too, because it's like, even if you're not a coach that has a ton or don't, maybe you don't feel like it's your place or you don't, you don't have, I'm not sure if you don't feel like it's your place, but if you don't have a ton of tools to give the athlete, I really think even just exposing the athlete, giving those athletes the rep of frustration, the rep of sadness, the rep of failing. I, I, that, I've seen that by far, like be so powerful for athletes, so powerful. Like it, they, again, they self-organize in sport. They self-organize in that psychological state too. It's like they understand, but it, it's, when the pressure is just a little bit low and it's like that, the learning, get the learning curve. It's like you, it, when it's in a game and that's the first time they're exposed or in a practice where like their, their status on the team or, or their, whether they play or not, their minutes are on the line. It's, it's too deep into the learning curve. There's too much of a stressor for them to learn anything from that. Whereas if you can get them frustrated and messy and failing in this, this kind of bell shape of the learning curve where it's the top where the stressor is just enough to get them like, frustrated just enough to get them pissed off they they still don't want to lose in front of people but not enough to where like that maybe it's a million dollar contract on a line maybe it's uh their their scholarship on the line like where that weight isn't there that's where you really see that that growth come from and and that's uh skill wise too like you said it's like shooting on the shooting machine there's so many pieces there that you can talk about it's like the 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 stressor is not the same the, the movements are not the same like shooting under pressure like not none of that's the same but like the, the stress is so low on the opposite side of the bell curve that you, you're really not learning anything. It's not enough stressor and the stress in a game or practice where your scholarships on the line is on the other end of that bell curve where it's too much. And you want to find that sweet spot in the middle. And that's where skill coaches, that's where strength coaches, sports performance coaches, that's really where we lie. And we kind of lose that magic with, with a lot of our athletes just because we, 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 we don't want to be the, we, a lot of it's, we don't want to be the coach that pisses off our athletes. Like we want them to feel good, especially when I see it in the private sector all the time. It's like that they're scared to have their athletes fail because their job is, and a lot of it's the ego of the coach too. It's like, if the athlete's failing, I'm not a good coach. If the athlete's failing, I'm not like, no, the, the other way is true. Like if the athlete is always succeeding, you're just not like, it, it's straight an ego game. You're not challenging your athletes. They, they fail in their sport. And this yeah, yeah. is the paradox. Like they fail in their sport. We, we see it all the time. The best of the best fail in their sport. They, they, they fail. If, if they're not doing that in their training, you're not preparing them for their sport at all. So it, it turns in this all ego thing of if it looks messy, I'm not a good enough coach to make it look clean. Or it's like that that just seems like a total paradox of what what do we see on the field? What do we see in training? And, and they're totally two different things. And, and we're really not bridging the gap as as 
basic of a word that as that is has become we're really not bridging the gap at all between our training and uh and our on-court performance because we don't want to be the bad guy and we don't want to hurt our own ego of it looks sloppy and my gym looks clean yeah and then part of that is like the survivorship bias like you have these coaches they get to a position and they want to keep that position so they're going to see uh all right coach k did this drill at duke coach k is a good coach like i'm going to do this drill and so they just implement that drill and then if anyone questions it it's like oh it's coach k's drill like oh you can't say it's a bad drill it's coach k so that's why i think it's really cool to see a lot of people changing the game and whatever avenue it is you know i like to i'm in the basketball space you say you're more football strength conditioning like whatever field like there are people disrupting things and it's typically the people that come from pretty unique places because they can make these mistakes in the dark and they can try things in the dark and no one's there to challenge them which i think is the beauty of social media now like we can share a lot of the stuff we're doing and we're you know mostly independent like we don't have anyone to report to right like so we don't have the the pressure of losing our job so we can try new things and hopefully that can be uh start to like trickle into the normal or like traditional way of doing things to actually improve these athletes outcomes in the long run yeah and uh, your survivorship bias is so because you see it in a football role too it's like the the drill like the coach like the coach what he's really good at is recruiting like, the, like if we're gonna be on like every good football team i've played for or watched or known to coach of what that coach is phenomenal, what a head coach is phenomenal at, and I'm not eliminating their technical or tactical understanding of the game, but to be an, a phenomenal coach, to be one of the best coaches in the world, what your best skill set is, is recruiting. You bring absolute animals in. And I talk about this all the time. It's like the easiest coaching job I ever had was when I coached Division One, and that was Division One FBS football. You know, like it wasn't like even the highest level of football. Like, you know, it wasn't Alabama, you know, like these, these were dogs for the level that like of this level. And then there's another level above that. And then the professionals above that. It's like your job at that level, man, is just like get those guys on your team. Like get get that dog yeah. onto your team. That is your number one skill set. And from there, it's don't don't mess that kid up because like he's already a freak. But like you said, when you're working in the dark and, and you you kind of have to like explore a little bit more, like you can see, does this actually work? Or does it not? Not am I out just like out recruiting everything? We did so many like so many teams that were like we played on the national championship, two national championship teams, coached a team that won like went undefeated in uh, Division One um, FBS, and we sur- all we did we we survived so much stuff and we out recruited everything. Like that's all we did. We out recruited all of our problems. We did not like we had some good pieces of like technical and tactical understanding. We had a good culture. But we out recruited everything. That's what we did. All of our mistakes are shit. Like we had like four strength conditioning programs in four years when I was a coach, when I was a player there, like four strength conditioning programs in four years, every single one won football games because we out recruited it. You know, like that didn't matter. Like as long as we stayed healthy, we just out recruited our problems and, and it hides so much when you're able to do that. And that that's where I, like you said it, like it, it's kind of tough because it's like, I see it on Twitter is the worst, man. Like I've been getting on Twitter and posting drills on Twitter and stuff like that, but it's the worst with some of these coaches. Like, well, they would never do this here. It's like, yeah, dude, they're like, uh, bro, go look at the athletes that they have. They don't have, they don't have to do anything there. They literally have to, those athletes have to look at weights and they're going to become freaks of nature. I had uh, uh, Chad right. Chilion and he was talking about, he worked with a, 
he was talking about how he worked with a dude that deadlifted 800 pounds. And Chad was like, everybody came to me. He's like, how did you get him to deadlift 800 pounds? I was like, well, the dude came to me deadlifting 700 pounds. And I yeah. just had him not get hurt. Like, that's all I did. And he's like, everybody's freaking out. Like, oh, you coached an 800 pound deadlifter. He's like, uh, I didn't do anything, dude. Like, he just genetically came to me deadlifting 700 pounds and it worked to that point. And I just gave him a program that allowed him to just do what he did. And he coached 800. But I feel like that's what you see with a lot of coaches. It's, again, not eliminating anything, but like just accepting what the number one skill set is. And that is an important ass skill set that doesn't like that's where other coaches like strength coaches like, Oh, that's all they do. It's all they do. You can't do that. That's why you don't get paid. Like you can't recruit, you can't talk, you can't build a culture like they do, but it's like, we don't have to, we don't throw that away. That is a phenomenal skill set that will get you paid in any field. The ability to recruit and talk and build a culture and lead that'll get you recruited in any field. Accept that. Understand that is the number one skill set. These coaches have, but then you don't have to tie that into, oh, they're master coaches of drill. They're masters. It's like, hmm, nah, mate, their PhD is in recruiting. Their PhD is in communication. And a lot of them have like high school educations in, I mean, middle school educations in strength conditioning and sports performance and probably high school educations in some of the technical tactical. And that's where they surround their weaknesses with other coaches that have PhDs and those things. But I, I just think we get lost in the sauce a little bit and lost in the magic and the stars of what's kind of going on in front of us instead of just being open and accepting what's actually going on. Absolutely. I think that's a huge piece that I've seen and something I haven't even like consciously thought about, but like through conversations with my teammates, like we, we've been really frustrated at some point, like we're winning games, but we're playing way worse than we're capable of. And it's like, we're in the system that doesn't fit us. But like, why are we winning? It's like, well, our coach just recruited better guys than the rest of the league. And so as I've like gotten out of the, the college scene, I've gone back and watched a lot of college practices, a lot of high level high school practices. And the one thing I'm noticing is like, there are probably five to six shots per player on average. Maybe the good guys are getting like 10, maybe the, the bad guys are getting like two um, per practice. That is like an actual game transferable rep. And I think it's a huge opportunity in the college space of let's just take some like basic science, like look at some perception action coupling work and say like, hey, this is a better shooting drill than your spot shooting that you're doing for five minutes in practice. Like let's take those five minutes and add in one shooting drill that requires the athlete to make a decision not to pass the ball and then to decide to shoot and not dribble and then execute the skill over some defense. If we can get five minutes of that and replace your five minutes of BS shooting that doesn't really work and that has just been happening for thousands of years because that's just how you know people shot in basketball, um, there would be probably some pretty big improvements in some performance. Uh, so I think that's actually a, a pretty good opportunity um, for some of these coaches who are more independent and have the ability to explore these avenues and really dive deep into skill acquisition to have a symbiotic relationship with the guys that are just really good recruiters. Because I mean, the ego is a little bit of an issue, but once you can set those egos aside, I think there's a really uh, impressive byproduct to combining those two. 
Yeah, like you said, and when when you approach it in that way too, I, I love that you said like you're looking at like the best players are getting maybe five shots that are realistic in this two in probably two hours of practice, and you talk like the wear yeah. and tear of that practice, and and just the the energy drain of that practice, or even the psychological drain showing up every day. But you get five shots that are like meaning anything or like transferring at all. Um, and, and you could spend those five minutes doing something and you probably get five shots that transfer more so in those five minutes than you do the rest of the two hours and trying to build out your practice, yeah. like in a more meaningful way in which you're, you're not wasting that time. And like, if you want to talk about injury prevention, that's probably like, you can probably get more done in a 30 to 40 minute practice than most do in two hours, the way most people are practicing. But like, that's, that's again, letting, letting go of the reins of, Oh, I need, I need to feel like we're working. Like we've got to work. We got to grind. It's like. Yeah, it goes back to like taking 500 shots off that, off that, uh, off the rebounder because it's like you want to feel like you're working. You want it's almost like this dopamine hit. It's like this fake grind, but it's like really, if you look at it objectively, it's like you don't put yourself in situations that are hard because you don't want to, because that would be the real grind. So you want to do it in a way of you don't want to, you don't want to be lazy, but you don't want to actually grind. So you want to do something that looks enough like the grind, but isn't actually because you don't want to go actually to the darkness or the frustration or the pain. Nobody wants to go there. Nobody wants to feel like shit. Nobody wants to like cost their team a, a game, even if it is a small like two on two game. Like nobody wants to do that. So you, you want to go just enough to like feel good about yourself, but not actually go all the way to where something that'll actually like work and improve what you're doing. But I'm interested, how would you build out a practice then? You, you talked about like those five minutes. If you're in charge, and maybe it's just just talking about how you lay out your sessions. Like, how do you lay out your sessions in a way that is just a little bit more productive than and than what the typical side is? You talked about that warm up game, starting with those, that type of thing. Like, what's your typical approach when you're laying out a session? I know it in, it varies like per individual and what you want to work on, but could you lay out a session and what that kind of looks like? Yeah, I'll talk about the group sessions because I think those are the most uh, dynamic and, and fun to talk about. So, it starts with some sort of warm up um and by, by warm up it could be let's go play soccer let's go play tag let's go um keep a balloon up in the air for as long as possible like it could be really really fun or sometimes we will do like a traditional dynamic warm up and it really depends on like what stimulus I'm trying to provide so if I'm doing an in season group workout I'm probably going to go more so on the fun side because that's probably the stimulus that most of those kids are missing but if I'm in the summer, I am going to sprinkle in probably less than like 20% of the time, but I'm going to sprinkle in a traditional dynamic warm-up because I really want to try and replicate the feeling, the sensation of like what's going to happen in practice at a college spot where most of these kids are playing. Like it's not a fun thing. You got to find ways to psych yourself up. You got to find ways to get engaged. Um, so it'll toggle between the mostly a fun warm up and sometimes like a more serious, boring warm up that they're going to do most of the time in season. Um, and then we'll get pretty quickly into live work. And the reason I have defense on almost everything is one, because these guys are in a group session and we're from New Hampshire and there's probably less than. I don't know, 20 guys that are playing at a high level. Um, so, like, this is a really good opportunity for them to get really quality live work. Um, but more importantly, we want them to have game-realistic information to make their reads off of. Um, so I want them to see 
information. The information is going to be the defender. And then whatever we're working on for that day, um, that's going to be the focus. That's how I'll design the environment. The way I typically build in a session is I'll give them like the most immediate source of information when shooting. So say we're working on catch and shooting as like a simple example. The, the most immediate source of information is like, is someone closing out to you? Like, do you have a defender close by? So we might do some like live contested jump shots. I'm passing them the ball. The other guy's trying to block their shot. They're just trying to read the physical space. And then we're going to just keep adding layers of relevant information. And the end goal is that we're playing where they have the ability to make any decision they want, but we're trying to get them to decide on the action that is like the intent of that session as quickly as possible. So if we're working on catch and shoot, a good person who's good at catch and shoot knows when they're open and catch and shoot is the best thing, knows when they need to catch and rip. They know when they need to catch and actually pass to the other guy or they know when they need to ball fake. Like there are an infinite amount of possibilities, but they need to see all that information. So to go back to the session is like, we'll start one-on-one -on -one closeouts, then we'll start two-on-one and then we'll go two-on-two. So we add in some passing options, we add in some cutting options, we add in some dribble options, and then we'll go three on three. And it depends on how many guys we have for the day. So we'll usually end with a continuous three on three or a continuous four on four. Uh, and they're really playing, competing, very free flowing. And, and we're just trying to train those natural basketball instincts for them to be able to perceive defense and act on offense as quickly as possible. Um, and it goes both ways for the defense to perceive the offense and, and play as good a defense as possible because that is 50% of the game. So we use live defense a lot for offensive skill development, but just as much of the session is these guys are practicing live defense as well. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I got, I got a couple points I want, I want to ask about here. What does kind of your coaching look like in these moments? Like, you talk about it's free flowing. Are, are you ever stopping and be like, hey, we missed it? Like, how are you pointing out things? How are you kind of directing things and shaping it and then kind of shaping the environment in a way that which maybe it's scaling back, maybe it's pushing forward, maybe it's suggesting something like, how are you going about that coaching process during the, these free flowing 2v2, 1v2, 3v3 environments? Is it during the breaks in between? Like, what are you kind of looking at there? I really don't say a ton and I try and not talk as much as I can. Um, I will film a lot of these in as we're going. So if I see we're playing two on two, one on one, and I see something, I'll just show the player the film real quick and I'll just say, what did you see? And it's better if they can make the realization. Sometimes they'll say what I noticed as well. Sometimes they won't, but I'll just be like, all right, cool, keep playing. And if I can get them to solve a problem on their own, that is way better than me giving them a solution. Um, so I'm really trying to take a step back and not say much and just let the environment um, help them come to a, a functional solution. If I do say something, um, it will probably be at least like five to 10 reps in. And if I'm noticing a trend of like, guys have the option to back cut, but they're not back cutting, maybe I'll just like stop for a second and be like, hey guys, like you can get a back cut in here if you want. Um, let's see it. I'll give it, maybe I'll give an extra point for a back cut. And then I'll just, remove myself, let him play. Um, I really try and be as removed as possible. Um, and then if there's something like an individual and I have, have talked about, 
in between um, some reps, I'll go over and talk. So the beauty of having the, gr the group session is like, if we're playing two on two and we have eight guys, like there is probably 12 seconds where some group isn't going. So I can go over and talk to an individual and be like, Hey, uh, we said we wanted to work on catch and shoot and you just passed up three times uh, an open shot. Like why? And then it's a conversation. Um, and then I think the most important piece is actually how we end sessions. As far as my coaching, um, we're going to end with a meditation every time, like feet up on the wall. We're going to meditate for probably two minutes, three minutes. I do it one part for the skill acquisition piece. So like literally how the, the brain is downloading the information so that we can get the most out of what we just worked on. But then also to get these athletes into a space where they feel comfortable and can really open up and talk. Um, and that's when we have some of the best conversations. The session's done. These guys are pretty tired, but they're relaxed and now they're open to talking. So they'll talk amongst each other. We'll talk one-on-one. -on -one. They'll maybe talk about their team, some emotional struggles, whatever it is. Like we can connect the most right there. And that's where a lot of my coaching happens because they'll open up about what they want. They'll open up, up about why they want that. And then we can really uh, break down the barriers that aren't get, that are, that are holding them back. Um, I, I generally believe most of the stuff is an unraveling and, whatever is inside of them will, will bloom. So it's more about peeling back that those barriers that are in their way. Um, and it happens mostly after the session when, when the, the work is done, but the real work really happens, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's so freaking awesome. The, the meditation piece too. It, it, like you said, it's like that, that it sounds weird to say like the, how much talking goes on after meditation because you think they'd be relaxed, but it's like, it takes almost all the guard down. And everybody's just freely talking. Like I've noticed the same exact thing in our gym. Like they, it's almost some, it's always some of the best conversations is after something like that. Or, or if we're playing some goofy game, like to just where the guard goes down and you're relaxed and be like just talking and you hear things like, Ooh, what did you say there? Like, that's something to dig into. It's almost like you're, you're like this psychologist, like picking apart, like, okay, you said that about your coach. Like, let, let, let's grab onto that. And like, let, let's note that, 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 that's something that's super powerful. Um, I really love it. One, oh no, go ahead. Go sorry, ahead. What, you just made me think of this. I, I haven't had this, uh, realization, but this might be part of it. So the way we have the guys meditate is they will go next, like pretty close to each other with their feet up on a wall. And I typically instruct like, all right, no phones, that's a rule. And just breathe, no talking. Almost every single time they break the no talking rule. And I haven't said anything for a long time about it. And I like have continued, I won't say anything because a lot of good conversations happen. But I think there's something like when you're so vulnerable, like your feet up against a wall and like you're literally talking to like the guy you just competed, like it's kind of pillow talk and you're all sweaty, but you're like right next to him. There's there's some piece of that where it's like it's such a weird situation. You just got to talk and open up with these guys because you're going through something with them right now. It's a little strange. Yeah, that, that, that's so cool that we talk about that. Like uh, the the weird connection that happens at our gym because of all that. Like you said, like it's literally like going to battle and then like the, the, the pillow talk after. It's like you almost have to become best friends with that person to make it through all the weird shit that you're going through and, and all of the like emotional struggle you're going through when you're competing with that person especially and i'm not sure like you you talk about you had a couple of players that are like continually like they've been with you for a couple of years like we we have people that show up for us the last like three years in a row for four days a week every single week you know like the same people over and over and it's literally like a fan like they see each other more than they see anybody else for two hours a day for four days a week 
for two years, three years straight, which, which like at that point, like to make it through that, you better, you better have some good conversations there, which, which I think is super cool. And being able to build that up, you, you, one of the points I want to draw back on, you, you talked about adding that, that point, like you adding that point to kind of like encourage the back cuts like changing the environment just slightly like that and we do that a lot with our games it's like okay we want you working maybe it's a sidearm pass maybe it's to get somebody involved maybe it's just to work on a certain aspect but we'll reward it with a certain or 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 have a consequence if you're scoring a different way um and, and sometimes it's like getting to a certain goal that a lot of times we'll play like three goal we'll call it muddle which is basically flag football but I want if I want a high velocity day, I'll put the goal that's the farthest away that's going to require the most opening up of speed to get to. We'll make that worth three points and the one close worth one point. So like if you want to just keep going for the one, it's okay, whatever. But like I want you opening up in this more contextualized way to where we're going for that three pointer. We're we're opening up for at least and even at least trying for it. That's the other thing. Really, I don't care if you score. Like that's not my goal. It's like I just got 15 like high velocity, like contextualized sprints out of you, which I which I think is super important. And that that's where I kind of want to tie it into. Maybe, maybe more ways you do that in your group setting, but maybe it kind of a ties into more of that one-on-one sessions, like where an athlete is coming to you. Cause I, I know it can be kind of like you, you kind of want to have that free flowing, like basketball sense, especially like one of the things, oh, sorry, I'm going to rant a little bit. Cause one of the things that you mentioned is like where there's only 20 yeah. basketball players and you're applying to your demographic. It's like, if you're in a spot where like, I think this, I'm relating this to football where like, if I'm in Texas where all these people are doing is playing seven on seven football all day long because they're surrounded by 14,000 other football players that are doing the same exact thing all year long. Training those kids is going to be much different than training in Minnesota where you get access to sun like three months out of the year. Like none of these kids are playing like doing any of this stuff, you know? So I, I thought that was a really cool point. It's like you're working with your demographic of these kids don't get surrounded with high level talent ever. And like, the best thing you can give them right now, even if it's it's not maybe it's not the best thing everywhere, but the best thing you can give them is surrounding them with the talent and let them compete with talent. I thought that was such a cool piece that I think a lot of people might it might go under the radar on what you were saying, because that's that's, an, again, another layer to it. it's like, what is your demographic? What are they doing like all year long? What are they exposed to working in Texas football is much different than working in Minnesota football. Um, And, and I, I kind of love that piece. Trying to tie it back into what the fuck I was talking about, but your one-on-one sessions. There we go. The one-on-one sessions, like you talk about working with that person one-on-one, where that athlete is trying to develop a certain skill set. Like, how are you? How are you applying that with that one-on-one? How are you rewarding it? How are you building that game? Because that's a much different dynamic of somebody comes to you with a certain skill set. Like they they want to add a maybe it's a, a movement to their kind of their their movement toolbox that they have like they want to add certain things like how does that differ when you're working with somebody one-on-one and how are you kind of approaching that yeah so when i work one-on-one um i'm not really going to take someone one-on-one unless we're working on shooting and reason being is i don't think there are many skills that i can actually really help someone else with um just from an evidence-based approach. Like I think shooting is the one skill that a one-on-one approach um, actually helps. Like if someone comes to me and they want to work on defense, like you need to go play basketball. Um, So we need to be in a group setting. It's not to say like, I don't feel like I have the expertise to talk about uh, defense or I don't have the expertise to give you a bunch of these like dribbling drills, but you need other bodies. And so if we're working one-on-one, I don't really want to be playing defense for hour, an hour and a half after I've just done my own personal workouts because I'm still training to play professionally as well. So we need group sessions unless it's shooting is like the one thing. And 
that makes it pretty interesting because most people are going to fall on the spectrum for shooting of, of like discipline and relaxation. Um, and a really good shooter is somewhere in the middle. They're, they know how to relax, but they know how to stay disciplined to the characteristics that are going to give them a consistent jump shot. Um, so the way I approach that session is going to be based off how I read where they fall on that spectrum. Um, so if I have someone who's like high, high discipline, I might, I'm going to encourage really flowy work, really relaxed work, really unconventional. Like we're going to be shooting off one leg. We're going to be shooting um, maybe some eyes closed free throws. We're going to be shooting with super high arc to really encourage the relaxation rather than the discipline and the function. Um, whereas if I have someone who's like really, really relaxed, all right, we need to give some discipline. Maybe we're like making a certain number of shots. Um, like you got to shoot a corner shot then shoot an elbow shot then shoot a floater. Um, so it really depends on the individual as far as how we emphasize like what's important. And then to your point about like encouraging or, or changing some part of the drill, like adding a different point. Um, again, it comes down to the individual. So like I'm working with this one girl, uh, and she like really loves talking about food. And like, that's like her, like the way she connects with people is like, she talks about food. She wants to talk about like what you ate for the day. And she's, she's, she's a younger girl. Like she's in seventh grade. Like she just like really likes doing that. So if I'm at a point in the workout where maybe she's getting frustrated or she's not like giving the focus of like the skills that she wants to work on, but for whatever reason she's having a day. Um, all right, well, like I'll just start talking about food with her. And so it doesn't always have to be like a structure. Like I'm going to add one point. It could be like, Hey, like let's talk about the best cinnamon roll you've ever had. And it's totally different from the gym, but it changes the environment and changes our relationship. And then she gets back to shooting and performing the skill in a way that we want. Um, so it's probably a little bit of a weirder answer than, than you might've been uh, uh, looking for, but that's really my approach is it's, a, it's an individual relationship, um, especially in, in those one-on-one sessions. Um, yeah. No, but that, that, that goes back to like, you know, one of your first points you made is like directing that focus and directing that attention, uh, which I think is important. It's like knowing the person and how do you play and, direct that attention like how how do you do that with that individual athlete because it changes with each one like you said like I, i've noticed like a lot of times especially when we used to run like just straight sprints like there, there's so many different ways but you you run straight sprints and the athlete like first two it's like okay high energy and then they're burnt out after it and it's like okay how can we get that athlete? like that athlete is pring uh and they're done like they, they just mentally done like they don't care anymore it's like what I found is like we play games in between sprints and like they're they're bought back in. Like you go play spike ball sprint, go play spike ball sprints. You could do that for nine hours and these athletes are like, hell yeah, let's go do this. And but you just have them do the same amount of sprints in a row and you won't make it past three sprints without them like completely falling off what they want to do. And it's just because it, like it, it, you got to direct and play with that. And like you said, I love that point, too. It's like it doesn't have to be the game. It's just a lot of it's honestly like just a change in environment for them. It's like that emotional acceleration and deceleration, like going again, ebb and flows, but making them feel something. It's like, if they're always just at this level, it, like they stop, they stop feeling like a reason for being there. And when that is gone, it doesn't matter how good of a coach you are. Like you're, you're not doing like that athlete doesn't care anymore, whether they want to or not, like their brain is just not engaged in it anymore. It's like, you hear that when like 
these coaches do. I, I see it a lot of times in these speed coach, like these speed uh, drills and these uh, speed uh, seminars. The, these athletes will cue, these coaches will cue soup their athletes for 30 minutes. And the athletes are super engaged for two. And it's like, they, they just want to sprint. Like they don't care anymore. Like you got their attention. You, yeah. you said like, say your point, let them sprint. And if you really, like, if your goal is to really cue soup them, like, intermix it like let them sprint and then come back and talk to them them, i'm not saying that's the best way but at least it's like it's better than just having them sit there for 30 minutes and not engaging them at all for sure and i think to people that are are good demonstrations of this would be steph curry clay thompson uh so luckily enough like when i was out in california uh some of the guys that came in the gym had worked directly with with steph and clay so we got like a kind of inside view into how those guys work um i actually got to see clay work out one time which was unbelievable but they're both really good shooters we can we can all agree on that like some of the best to ever do it steph could shoot 100 shots maybe he makes 95 out of 100 when he's at that point because of his like obsessive personality he's got like rage to master like he really just like can obsess over that and he will just keep shooting that same shot, whatever, because he wants to try and make the next 100, right? Whereas you take Clay and he does 95 for 100, he's probably bored out of his mind. Like, all right, yeah, I could go make another 100, but like, why would I do that? Like, I know I can do it. So you take those two athletes, Clay, you got to change up that environment a lot. Like, maybe you got to give them short, like short-term challenges, like, hey, um, can you make nine in a row in a minute? Like really immediate that is going to get his attention right in that moment. Whereas Steph, because of who he is, for whatever reason, how he's brought up, like you can just rebound for a hundred more shots and say nothing. And he's going to be so locked in. And so it's like, you got to find where these athletes are um, as people and like what makes them tick. Um I've had the the privilege of working with Duncan Robinson, the, the shooting guard for uh, the Heat, and he's one of those guys that just like loves shooting challenges. So we could be doing some shooting work. If if I see that he maybe he's not super engaged, like give him a shooting challenge, and he will just lock in. Like, what's the record? First question: What's the record <laughs> yeah. before he goes? And he's he's going for it. And like that's what makes these guys great. Like he's great because he's got this obsessive it's about shooting whereas maybe like a guy like john morant's great because he's the ability to just relax so much and just really let his creativity in the game flow so it's so it's such an individual thing and you just got to find that with your athletes and and you can't really do that if you're just talking the whole time and you're not getting any feedback from them so i think that's a common theme like in our conversation is like you can't over talk during these sessions let the athletes be who they are and then figure out where you can push them in the right direction yeah, I freaking absolutely love the Clay Thompson thing because this one made me think that like it's like that athlete, like Clay Thompson, before he's Clay Thompson, is probably pissing off a lot of coaches. Like the coaches that don't know how to challenge an athlete, it's like that guy's lazy. That guy's not. It's like that dude's Clay Thompson. Like that dude, that dude's one of the greatest shooters of all time. Like every coach wants that Steph Curry analytical mind, coach's mind. Like I'm just gonna keep going, keep going, keep going. And that coach's like, that's the grinder. That's the guy I want. It's like. Okay, you have Clay Thompson. All you have to do, all you have to do is just step out of your box a little bit and find a way to motivate that athlete. And it's not that he's not bought in. His brain just works different, man. Like he, he's doing it for a different reason. He, and I, who cares? Like when he steps onto the court, they're they're both Hall of Fame players, you know? Like, so you, you, that, again, that goes back to you being a coach. It's like, it's, 
drives me insane. Most of the time, the athlete is not lazy. Most of the time, you are lazy as a coach. Like that, I, th- I think that 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 we need to accept that. It's like it, it's not on that athlete. It, it's on, and that's not to say it's never on the athlete. But it, for the most part, what I've seen, it's like you just don't know how to get that athlete to buy in. You have no no idea how to like go to that athlete and understand. And the so cool to hear like that Clay Thompson thing because like. Oh, he's just dry. He's never going to make his name. That, that dude is the highest level you can be at. And w- if you got to coach him when he was younger, you would be the coach that would say, Oh, he's lazy. Oh, I don't want to work with him. Like, whatever. It's like, man, that did you just totally missing opportunities. And I, I just, it made me think of Odell Beckham just tweeted out, like, I, I think it was Odell or it was maybe his RG3. One of them tweeted out something like talking about Tooney going to the Chiefs. And he was talking about like this this like this is the perfect example of how environment is almost everything. And Tooney was with the Giants and didn't play and was beat up all the time and never did really anything. Gets shaded to the Chiefs, which is more of this high-flying, fun offense. You got Patrick Mahomes passing the ball. And the dude's a dog now. So it's like... Again, you get sworn off in one place by one coach as being lazy, never wanting to work, always beat up. You go to another place and you're a key part of winning a Super Bowl, you know? So, like, again, that that is on you as a coach. You are getting these specimens brought to you. You need to find a way to work with it, not the other way around. Absolutely. I think there was a, a quote that went about around recently that went a little viral. It was about, like, the price of a bottle of water. And, yes, you know, it's yep. $1 here and then it's like $7 in the airport. Like, it's just about your environment. It's true. It's true. Absolutely. Well, coach, this was freaking awesome. We just ripped through like an hour and 15 minutes like it was nothing. This was amazing. I fell short, dude. Thank you for having me on. This is a, a fun conversation. I learned a ton, so I appreciate it. Keep doing all your great work. I love it. Thank you for being on. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.